Tonight, if you turn to Luke chapter 8 and the second installment of this beautiful picture of kind of some of the final ministry before Jesus goes to Jerusalem and then would, of course, begin the final week of his life. But this is really the end of his ministry time in the northern region of Galilee. We're going to pick up in verse 26 of Luke 8, and we're going to take all the way to verse 56 tonight and a study that's really the second part of the dynamic master. And as we pick up this study, um, it's also really important for us to, to kind of hone in on what Jesus has been doing. As we think about where Jesus has been ministering, it's been a very, very personal ministry uh, that he's engaged in. And so he's now down to ministering rather than to the multitudes, which is where we started. We began uh, with the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, all these incredible, the I am statements of the Lord, these things that Jesus said about himself. Uh, And we now finish up with these small vignettes where Jesus is ministering to one, two, three, four people at a time. And as he's doing that, he's really showing in a very personal way the relational side, which is obviously the most important side for us as believers, the relational side that he has with us uh, as our Savior and Lord. And as he will finish that thought up in this chapter tonight, Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through the power of his word, the wonder and the majesty of it. Father, again, we have the blessing of being able to gather together in this place and to study your word. And we pray that tonight as we get yet another glimpse of you, Jesus, so dynamic and so wonderful in the lives of people who are troubled, troubled beyond Uh, what many, if not most of us, have ever endured. And yet, Lord, we see you in just such a powerful and wonderful way ministering to them. We pray that you would minister to us tonight uh, in the same way. And so we ask you to bless your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be partaking of communion towards the end of the service, and I'll kind of let you know. And as we do that, it really is going to be an opportunity for you to serve yourself. So. Verse 26 here in Luke 8. And then he sailed to the country of the Gardeness, which is the opposite side of Galilee. And so as you think of the region of the, of the Galilee, Jesus was home-based, as we've said, in Capernaum, which is on the North Shore. It's almost dead in the middle of the North Shore. And he branches out, goes to Magdala, and on around the shore over to Tiberias. And, and this city that's named is in an area that we know because of the book of Joshua that was portioned off when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the land of conquest. And you can read the story there in the book of Joshua. And all of the tribes were given their own land. The land of Naphtali was given on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so it was those of the tribe of Naphtali who inhabited that region. It's in modern-day Jordan. Um, So today it would actually be outside of the bounds uh, of modern-day Israel, but it was part of the 12 tribes, and it was the inheritance of a single tribe. But it was in a region that was bordered with the Edomites. And, of course, the Edomites, those of of Isaac and, or excuse me, of Esau, uh, they lived in that 
basic region. It's named after the rocks and the colors of those rocks, which Edom means actually red. And so you have this population of people that were kind of sort of friendly. They were Gentiles, but they were intermixed. A lot of Jewish people lived in it. And the Jewish people actually ruled the region. And that's important to the study because as we're going to see Jesus minister, he's going to minister in a very culturally diverse way. He's going to step into a situation where there's really the Gentiles kind of run the business enterprises of the of the area, and and yet the Jewish people kind of have the spiritual uh, atmosphere of the area. And so he sailed to the country of Gardenes, which is the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. So from the west side to the east side, or the center of the west side. And when he had stepped out on the land, there he met a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And as you read this, this is not, you know, some ethereal thinking. This man was demon-possessed, and he had been demon-possessed for a very long time. It wasn't something where he just kind of had a few mental issues. This man was literally possessed of demons. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in tombs. So you can imagine, this is the stuff of a horror movie. This is the kind of thing, there's this naked guy running around our community that lives inside of the cemetery in the region, and he is a terror to everyone. Moms guard their children when he comes, they shield their eyes, nobody wants to see this guy. This guy is absolutely, from everything that we can possibly imagine, this guy is a horror movie waiting for a place to be filmed. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in tombs. But when he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God? I beg you, do not torment me. So you can immediately see that this man being overtaken by demons, now it is really that demonic presence in his life that's speaking because these demons know exactly who Jesus is. James would go on to write and remind us that demons actually know who Jesus is. Not only that, they actually fear him. They have, a, they have an understanding that Jesus is the son of God. Some people don't quite get that, but it appears most demons do. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. And so this man was not just a casual demon-possessed person. This is somebody who had been possessed for a long time. Jesus had spoken into this guy's life. They had commanded the unclean spirit to come out, and and this guy strayed out into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, verse 30 says, what is your name? And he said, Legion. In this case, Legion could be loosely translated many. But in that case, a Legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers. So this man was beyond tormented because the man had many demons that had entered him. And they begged him, who's the they? It's the demons. The demons are actually speaking to Jesus, look, don't do this. That he would not command them to go out 
into the abyss. And so they understand that ultimately Jesus has absolute control over them. They understand fully exactly what's going to happen to them at some point in time. And it says in verse 32, And now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. And as these pigs are all over the hillside, so he begged him that he would permit them to enter, permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. And so the, the demons have come out of the man. They're, in essence, being now told what to do by Jesus. And the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. So here's a herd of pigs that ran violently down a steep place and into the lake and they drowned and when those who fed them saw what had happened they fled and told it in the city and in the country they they had seen the whole thing they had known this man they had watched what happened it was not something that was far-fetched to them they understood it completely and then they went out to see what had happened and they came to jesus and found the man with whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Isn't this what Jesus does for all of us? We're finally clothed and in our right mind. We were once lost. We were once blind. John Newton wrote, we were blind, but now we see. And here's this man sitting at the feet of Jesus. And they were afraid. I've often wondered, as read this passage, why they were afraid. What, what was it about the whole situation that made them afraid at that point in time? They also had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. So they understood fully that it wasn't some religious ordeal. There was no exorcism that Jesus did. Jesus didn't pull out a bunch of holy water. He didn't have a cross. He didn't chant some incantation over him. He didn't repeatedly, you know, force the man to the ground and stand on him. He, he, he didn't do any of those things. He simply, by the word of his mouth, spoke the demons out of the man into the swine. The swine, rather than be possessed, took their own lives. It was ham suicide right off the cliff. But the people were amazed. They're like, we, you know, we've seen people try and heal this guy before, and it didn't go well. And here's Jesus. And Jesus didn't walk up to him and say, well, that'll be, you know, 49 shekels. Jesus didn't say, okay, I want you to, you know, be my servant now. The man's just simply sitting at Jesus' feet because he was healed. And then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gardeness Ask him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat and returned. I love this part of the story. You realize why they were afraid. They're thinking, this dude's going to kill off our business. He's going to go around healing people. He's going to take the disease, the sickness, the demon possession. He's going to cast it into our livestock. They're going to jump in the lake. We're all going to be broke. Crazy. But now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. 
And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city the great things that Jesus had done for him. And so this first little story, the first of two major ones tonight involving three really different people, but all of them in a situation where they could not take care of themselves. And the first we see the, the saving of a, of a real terrorist. This guy's a maniac. He, he's, a, he's a true terrorist. When we think of terrorism, we think of terrorists, we often use the term maniacal. This man, you know, why someone would strap a bomb vest on themselves and blow themselves and other people up, it, it makes no sense. And this is the frame of mind that this demon-possessed man is in. He's doing stuff that is unthinkable. It's unconscionable. He's living in a place that for the Jewish people that lived in the region was unclean, a cemetery. He's wearing no clothes. He's terrorizing everyone. People are gathering up their kids. They're running away. When they see him coming, they're going the opposite direction. And so he truly terrorized the neighborhood. Parents wouldn't let their children out of their sight. Women were confined within the village. No one would risk being anywhere near this guy. But Jesus was about to change all of that. You see, when Jesus finds a terrorist, Jesus can heal terrorists. People that most people would give up on. Jesus is the Lord of the broken, the Lord of the possessed, the Lord of the depressed, the Lord of the oppressed. Whatever's going on in your life, the things that you're struggling with, the things that have kept you in bondage, the things that have made you socially unacceptable, the junk in our lives that we have not been able to get a grip on, Christ is powerful enough to drive those things from us. He's able to heal to the uttermost. The Lord and his disciples are actually finishing up their journey across the lake, and they arrive there. And, you know, as they come to this place, it's interesting, because when you view that side of the Sea of Galilee, it actually is uh, a very prime location for this exact story, because there are cliffs on that side of the lake. On the west side, there are none that touch the water, but on that side, there are cliffs that touch the water. So we know that the story is accurate. The thing that stands out to me in this first little section is that the plight of this wretched man before Jesus gets there is not good. There's no hope for this guy. He's been like this for years. This is the guy, and and I want to be careful, but this is the person that probably many of you have seen standing on a street corner, maybe someplace here in the South Bay, completely out of their mind talking to themselves, screaming into the air, pointing their fingers at imaginary things in the sky. I mean, this guy is worse than that, but it's a similar picture. We would say this man, there's no hope. There's no possible way that that man's broken mind could ever be healed. That whatever's wrong with him, it's beyond the scope of medicine. But can I remind you that Jesus is beyond the scope of medicine? Though he often uses doctors and uses nurses and uses medical advancements and technology and surgeries and all those things, Jesus doesn't need any of it. He can simply speak the terror out of our lives. And that is exactly what he does in this story. He describes this man as himself really being terrorized if you want to look at it that way 
And, and very often, and we, we talk about, you know, things that go on in our lives as shaping us and molding us and having an impact on the way we turn out. And while that is true, it's absolutely true that we are affected by the things around us, the world that we live in, the lives that we've lived, the people that we've come in contact with. That is absolutely true. What is not true is that in Christ's eyes, those things define you permanently. He can take and fix anything that's broken in us for whatever reason it's broken. Even if you've turned into a terrorist. Even if you've gotten to a place where the whole world has given up on you. He'd been in this condition for such a long time that in essence the nakedness that is mentioned in Luke's account is a sure sign that this man was beyond all shame. He couldn't care less what people thought of him. He was, he was out there. He was gone. He would have been cut off. Because he lived in a cemetery, he would have been cut off from all social contact. He was living in a region where the businesses were controlled by Gentiles, obviously because they were herding swine, which is not something a Jewish person would have done. That would have been Gentiles. But we're going to find out that it's also a place where the Jewish people actually resided because it was the land of Naphtali. Basically, he was halfway between dead and more dead. He lived in a cemetery. He was just on his way out. And you talk about a life that you could think about that from a human standpoint, we go, why bother? The type of person that we would drive by. The type of person that you maybe have seen. And so there's a little peace in this for us. If Jesus cares about people who are tormented and terrorized, we as the body of Christ need to care about people who are tormented and terrorized. One of the reasons that we do homeless ministry, it's one of the reasons that we're ministering in areas that people are, are in sad shape. We need to continue to do that. People can be very physically alive, but for all intents and purposes, they're nearly dead. When you think on this, I think it's important for us to realize that demons are absolutely still real today. Some Christians, unfortunately, believe that there's no such thing as demonic activity. Uh, I can tell you from firsthand personal experience that that absolutely is false. I have not only seen it, I've been involved in speaking with people who are absolutely demon-possessed. I've had firsthand sit down with people whom are possessed of multiple personalities. So much so, women speaking like men, and I'm and I mean without trying, they're not working it up. They're literally speaking in a man's voice, howling like wild animals. So before you think that can't happen, I have seen it happen personally. It doesn't happen as frequently in our world as it as it does in, in places that are, are less developed. You, you see it much more in the Caribbean. You see it much more in Latin America. You see it much more in South America and much more in Africa where people are simply susceptible because they have not had a grounding. One of the things that's a blessing of being a Christian nation is that by and large, people have come in contact with people who know the Lord, love the Lord, and the, the, the ground is not as fertile here 
as it is in other places of the world. So when you get out a little more, you will see a little more of this. But in this case, demons are absolutely powerful. But these were uniformly uh, described here as having you know, this wicked characteristic. And once they take up residence in somebody, they're really tough to drive out. But they're not tough for Jesus. They're not hard for him. And it's interesting to me that the demons actually call him by one of the names that is the most God-honoring. They call him Son of the Most High. Like, we know exactly who you are. Paul and Silas were called servants of the Most High God. These demons recognize who Jesus is. But the thing that you see is this man was completely out of control. Totally lost it. And and I wonder sometimes if people like those who are potentially the the homeless person that we may see on the sidewalk. I, I wonder sometimes if they've not been possessed by a demon. And they begin to act exactly this way. Remember that the power that you have in Christ is able to heal that person. But don't count them out. They've just been terrorized. And that's why they look like they're a terrorist. But to the dynamic master, he can set all men free. Jesus begins to ask them some questions. And Jesus is a match for anything, including a legion of demons that have possessed somebody. Notice how Jesus almost treats this matter of factly. He's not, you know, wandering around, well, I need to get the disciples. He just simply speaks into the situation, and and it all of a sudden changes. He's he's not worried by the situation, in other words. And, And in that sense, he's a match, more than a match. And so Jesus demands this man, probably reminded him a little bit uh, as he asked him his name. It's not because he needs to know Jesus' name or needs to know the man's name. He's getting the man to, to realize what the problem is. And so the, the demons were in terror of Jesus' ability to cast them into the abyss. And remember, that is the place that all the unrighteous dead, even to this day, still reside. So Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. Jesus had not yet paid the price for sin. So at that time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob also dwelled there. In other words, the saints of old who had died believing in faith. Rahab was there. Sarah, all of the great saints before the Lord had finished the work on the cross were there. And the demons knew that they were going to go there too. Jesus takes care of that whole situation. Just gives these demons exactly what they asked for. But the swine, however, uh, preferred death over being uh, overcome by the the demons. And so the Lord shows his command. The next part of this story is we pick up in verse 40. So Jesus takes care of the internal problem. Now notice we see a man, a woman... A child, and we begin with a very distracted father uh, in verse 40. And so it was when Jesus had returned. So he's gone from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He's heading back towards the western side. So maybe an hour and a half, two hour transit in a boat uh, across the Sea of Galilee, about eight miles or so. 
from, from where he had just taken care of this demonic activity. And now, so it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And so the demon-possessed man goes back, who was formerly demon-possessed. He's now ministering. He's telling everybody the great things that the Lord has done. Jesus realizes the work there is done. He's going to now go back to his hometown, likely Capernaum. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And so this man was a powerful man. He would have been well-established and well-liked within the community. He he would have been somebody that people looked up to. He would have been a man of power. Uh, He would have been a man of position. So he would have been one of the key members of society in this community that Jesus goes to. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had only a daughter, one, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. I don't know about you, but that's about as urgent a situation as any of us can possibly imagine. If you've ever been in that situation, you know that there is absolutely nothing that will keep you from doing anything and everything that is necessary to attempt to remedy that situation. If your child is in danger of dying... That is the one, the only thing that is on your mind. And so this guy realizes that his daughter is dying. She's 12 years of age. And he went and the multitudes thronged him. And so he kind of interjects himself into this situation where Jesus has come back and the multitudes are kind of gathering around Jesus trying to figure out, well, what did you do when you were on the other side of the lake? He may have told them about the situation. It's likely that Luke was traveling with him. And so he knows these things. But as they recross the lake, the crowd's waiting for him. People are welcoming, you know, Jesus, and it's kind of a little bit festive. And in the middle of this festive situation, we find a man in great need. We find a child in great need. And we're going to find a, a woman who is also in great need. And it seems like the whole situation is just out of whack. Do you ever have times in your life where it seems like the whole situation in your life is just completely out of whack? It's like nothing seems to make sense. The thing that should be important seems like it's not important to other people. The thing that is important to other people is the thing that you think is not important. And it seems like, where's God in all of that? What's he doing? Why, why, is, he, why is he seemingly allowing what we would think he could easily change? And so this man, Jairus, is in that. We're told that he's the ruler or the chief of the synagogue. And he would have been the one that would have dictated the order of service in the synagogue. He, he would have um, told people which section of the law. They would break the, the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of Moses. They would have broken that down into 54 readings for the year. And they would have finished what we call uh, the first five books of our English Bible would have been read through every single year. He's the guy that figured all that stuff out. If there was a message to be delivered, he would have delivered the message. He was, a, he was an important religious man, and he knew as much as one could know about the Bible at that time. But he had only one daughter, exactly one daughter, and that one daughter was dying. And to him, it wasn't about who was going to read the Torah. It wasn't about who was going to stand in the chief seat in the synagogue. It was about his daughter was dying. And we, and we find Jesus beginning to react to the situation. The doctors were shaking their heads. Basically, 
It's, it's spoken of so matter-of-factly. It's almost like, look, she's dead already. Nobody's really buying into the situation. They're all hearing. Luke, who's writing this, is a doctor. And we don't even see him intervening in it. It, it appears that this little girl was so far gone that nobody could do anything about it. But I want to remind you of something. God is always on time. He's never late. He never misses anything. So whatever your issue is, no matter how it may appear to you, it hasn't gotten by God. Verse 43, and I want you to see this, because it's this incredible situation that we would look at it and you and I if we sat down and we said okay over here we have a girl dying and over here we have a woman who's got a problem with her menstrual cycle we're kind of going to take the girl dying as a little more serious not that this is unserious but this is so much more serious why in the world would Jesus delay to do anything else And yet he does. Look what it says. And now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians. Now, we can identify with that, right? With with the way medical costs are and insurance and all this. We can actually kind of see how that's still true even in our day. And could not be healed by any. Came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? And everybody denied it. When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitude strong impressed you. And you say, who touched me? He's like, even the disciples aren't quite getting it. They're looking at the situation going, you know, what do you mean who touched you? I mean, you've got this guy that just walked up to you and he just told you his daughter's dying and there's people pressing all around you and you're asking a seemingly silly question, who touched me? The seemingly silly is never so to God. The seemingly simple is never so to God. The seemingly unimportant is never so to God. He never has things out of order. He doesn't miss anything. And Jesus said, somebody touched me and I perceived power going out of me. In other words, something happened. This woman had been healed. Power of God, the Holy Spirit working through Jesus touched this woman. And now when the woman saw that that she was not hidden, in other words, her her little attempt to be... um, incognito by touching Jesus from behind on the corner of his garment um, was no longer an available disguise. She came trembling and fell down before him. And she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason that she had touched him and how she was immediately healed. He finally admitted, I I'd spent all my money on doctors. and They couldn't touch me. They couldn't heal me. But Jesus, I simply touched him. You see, when you reach out to Jesus by faith and he touches you, you touch him, you can be healed. And he said to her daughter, be of good cheer for your faith has made you well, go in peace. And so Jesus now picks up this story. It's, it's so he stops in the middle of this incredibly tragic situation to attend to a need that is seemingly a lot less important. 
And yet we see the victory of God's work in each of these situations as is needed at the time. You have the distracted Jairus who is absolutely not so calm, I can, I can imagine at this point in time. And he's probably crying out, help my child. But Jesus addresses this distressed woman. Both people are 12 years old. Both of them have had 12 years of, of living under their belt, so to speak. It doesn't matter whether you're blessed, doesn't matter whether you're broken, doesn't matter whether you're deceased, distracted, dying. Jesus knows exactly how, when, and where to minister to your need wherever you are. Jesus gets very personal. This woman had, we don't know how much money she spent, but she spent a lot. Worse yet, she'd been ostracized from society. She'd been despairing of life. She would have had almost no social contact, un, very likely that she was unmarried. Almost, almost assuredly, she was unmarried. Her life is a living hell. She's trapped inside of an existence that no one would have wanted. There was no social safety net. There was no one to take care of her. She couldn't go get public assistance. She, she made her living the way she possibly could, and here she comes, and she just reaches out to Jesus. And if you've ever seen a Hebrew prayer shawl, on the, on the four uh, corners of that are the sezet. And they're, they're just little tassels, and there's four of them. And, and even those tassels are, are declared by a Jewish person to be holy. If you've ever seen, the, especially the young men, they actually wear an undergarment that has four of them out of the top of it, and they actually hang over the edge of their pants they were considered the, the, the person's actual garment was part of who they were as someone who knew the law of God. And so she reaches out realizing she can't touch Jesus because if she touches Jesus, Jesus is going to be unclean. And so she just reaches out for one of these tassels and she grabs the tassel thinking maybe she could just kind of steal a little bit of whatever's going on in Jesus. And Jesus says to her, basically, honey, you, you don't need to, to think that you need to take it. I'll gladly give it because I actually care about what's going on in your life. These people may all think it's unimportant, but I don't. I know what you've been going through. I know how bad it hurts to be cast out of society. This young girl that's dying is really important horrible what her dad's going through but it's horrible what you're going through you know that about jesus that he sees the things in your life with the exact measure of tenderness and care as he sees people whether they're distressed or depressed or dying he sees it all perfectly jesus asks her says who touched me it wasn't because he needed to know, because he knew who it was. But it's for her. He said, who touched me? So that she would publicly profess the faith. He would say, it was me. She couldn't take any type of credit for what had happened. She, she's crying out to Jesus. Her cover was blown and in fear and trembling, she just falls down at the feet of Jesus, says, 
It was me. And so Jesus says to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Be comforted. For your faith has made you well. And then he turns his attention. You see, we think we, Jesus has got it all backwards. We're looking at this whole situation going, man, why would you even give her the time of day? Why would you even care? She's not going to die. This little girl's dying. What are you doing? Verse 49. And while he was still speaking, and this is a beautiful picture because Jesus knows all these things. He's God. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler of the synagogue's house came saying to him, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher. This is how messed up we can get as people. This is how bad we can miss it. We get so matter-of-fact, and we, we put on Jesus things that are not true about him at all. Jesus actually does care. And just because he isn't doing what we want him to do when we want him to do it, doesn't mean he doesn't care. And I meet so many people that walk in defeat because of this very thing. They've been in a situation, someone gives them some counsel, well, you know, God's just punishing you. God's allowing that in your life, and it's all, everything is just, you know, God is sovereign, and so that's all he's doing here. No, God is sovereign, that's true, but God is a sovereign God who loves you as well. He cares deeply about the things that you're going through, but he also knows when the best time to take care of that situation is, and that's what we see in the remaining part of this passage. And while he was still speaking, someone comes from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she'll be made well. How was the woman with the issue of blood healed? She believed. She simply touched Jesus and she believed. How is this young girl going to be raised from the dead? Simply believe. And when he came into the house, he permitted, per, permitted no one to go in except Peter and James and John, the father and mother of the girl. Remember, now that this young girl is dead, this place is also unclean. This is the ruler of the synagogue. And so he's going into this situation to where he's going to be ceremonially unable to even perform his duties as the ruler of the synagogue. He's lost everything and now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, do not weep. She's not dead, but she's sleeping. And one day that's going to be true for all of us who love the Lord. People are going to think we're dead. People are going to think we're gone. But we're really just going to be sleeping. We're going to be sleeping in Jesus, of course. We're going to be very much alive. And so Jesus begins to move into this situation. And they ridiculed him. You can imagine, here Jesus has just healed this woman. She's now whole. She's praising the Lord. He's been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The whole community over there is praising God because of what Jesus can do. Everyone who's hearing all of this is like, man, Jesus can do anything. They're all getting the same consistent message, and they ridiculed him. Now, remember who's inside. It's all the people that have come. They've been hired as professional mourners, and you've got a handful of disciples and the mom and the dad. And basically, they're all going, look, she's dead. And he put them all outside and took her by the hand and called 
saying, little girl, arise. He says to her two, two words, Talitha kume. Rise, little one, little lamb. Then her spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded she be given something to eat and her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. When this story began, this little girl was only sick. And Jesus waits for the opportune moment to do the biggest work that he can possibly do. I'm going to have the worship team come back up and prepare to lead us in worship. And this is where I want to take this and kind of conclude this whole series. Because this is a picture of exactly how we need to see Jesus in our lives. You see, from a human perspective, it looks like God's blown it. It looks like somehow he lost sight of where this little girl was. And in our lives, virtually every one of you who's in here tonight, if you've not been through this already, you're going to be in this situation at some point in time in your life. You're going to think that God has somehow missed it. That that God was not paying attention and something came into your life. But he's waiting for the absolute best time to do exactly what he wants to do in your life. And sometimes that is allowing things that you would never allow. He uses things that you don't want him to use. He brings things into your life that you wish he would never bring into your life. We look at it and how could an unclean woman take precedence over a dying child? That makes no sense to us. And yet God does that. Don't forget the end of this story. Basically, when Jesus says everything's going to be all right, everything's going to be all right. When Jesus said, don't worry, that's what he means. When he says, fear not, that's exactly what he means. He's not just trying to, you know, make you feel good temporarily about the situation. He really means it's going to be okay. Peter allows his mind to wander, and James does the same thing. John does it. You know, they're they're looking at this situation. Go, man, this is so messed up. But from God's perspective, it wasn't messed up at all. They were going to be living examples of of why Paul would write in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, that 28th verse, that all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. This is it. What's going on here? We, We look at it and go, there's no way God can use this. And yet he does. It's the picture that we have. The professional mourners thought that just another job to them. The Lord puts them all out of the house. He says two words, and the grave is robbed. Jesus steals that little girl right out of the grave. He says, no, it's not your time. 
the woman who began the, the whole situation thinking, man, I'm going to live another 12 years like this, cut off from society with no one to ever touch me, no one to love me. Her situation was taken care of. Jairus, who got into the situation because he thought he had a position, some, someone of some means and power who thought he could simply demand of Jesus to do whatever it is that he wanted because he was the guy that called the shots in the synagogue. Jesus says, no, you need to learn a lesson that power and position don't matter to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And whether you're the highest or the lowest, I'll take care of things the way I need to take care of them for my own purposes and my own glory. And I'll make it all work together for the good. You leave that to me. You see, the Lord changed every single life that was present. We look at it, well, I would have done it differently. And Jesus looks at it, I did it perfectly. Whether you're a terrorist, whether you're tormented, whether you're terminal, Jesus is the answer to all of it. He's the one that says, only believe, trust me, let me work in your life. Don't miss that part of your relationship with God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the more we live by faith, the more opportunity we give God to show us who he really is. Walk by faith. And let God have all the stuff in your life. And Jesus will always prove himself faithful. He won't ever fail you. Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you. Thank you that these words are true. (laughs) And Lord, many of us in here have been terrorized. Some of us have been terrorists. Many of us have been tormented and troubled. Father, some of us are maybe even tonight terminal. But you're the answer to all these things. And so we pray tonight that as we close out this journey with you, Jesus, through the Gospels, we pray that we would never make you less than sufficient for all of our needs. Lord, every disease, every difficulty, even death is no match for you. And so we thank you that that's true. And we thank you that it's by faith that we have these things. Lord, it's not because of position, not because of power. Lord, it's not because of some progress or agenda. It's simply because you're you and you love us. And so, God, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We rest in it. And Lord, we ask as you ask the disciples to pray for more faith. Lord, we pray for more faith. Faith to believe, faith to act, faith to go, faith to stay, faith to believe in a big God for big things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.